title of this message is The Sanctuary Cycle. New Covenant portion will be 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. When God confused the language of man, man scattered and spread that confusion from the Tower of Babel to the various lands that they went to. In the book of Bereshit, Genesis chapter 4, 11, verse 14, it gives a list of the descendants of Noah and specifically the descendants of his son Shem. And one of those de descendants is named Ivir. It comes from a root which means to cross over, like a stream or prairie or desert. The city of Ivran was named after him. We call it Hebron. It is also the root of the word Ivrit, which means Hebrew, both the language and the people who spoke it. By the time of Moshe, Ivrit, Hebrew, was the language of God's people. The language of the Lord that he uses to convey his thoughts in, in the word of God and the scriptures. As the Hubble and the Webb telescopes bring the physical heavens into greater focus, so too Hebrew renders the realm of God in greater detail. I'm going to be defining some words here and try to tie these things together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things that is hoped for and the substance of things not seen. Those words are an English translation of the Greek words, and the Greek was a translation of the Hebrew words that both Yeshua and his disciples originally spoke. The New Covenant references concepts that are found in the Tanakh that are written in Hebrew. I'm not talking about faith in some Aristotelian or Platonic philosophy, we're talking about the faith that God speaks about in Tanakh. And with each translation, there is meaning that is lost. You hear it proverbial saying already, something is lost in the translation. Each language that you translate an original work into becomes less intense you lose the communication of the author. It is part of the effects of the Tower of Babel that remain with us. The Greek word pistis, or faith, in Hebrew is emunah. Emunah comes from the same root as the word amen that we say at the end of each prayer, and it means true, truth represents something that is real, not imagined. 
I discussed this in far greater detail when treating the subject of faith and works. Faith is not delusion. It is the reality of what God reveals to a person. It is something that is, something that was, or something that shall be. Faith is not causative. Faith doesn't create anything. It is a revelation of the creator to man. Faith reveals the actual existence of something that cannot be seen and is derived by either reason or revelation. Perhaps an example will clarify. For 2,000 years, many of my people had a perfect faith that Israel would once again exist. They couldn't see it. There was nothing that suggested that it would. The Jewish people were scattered all over the earth. But they believed that faith was derived from revelation. God declared that he would restore Israel and gather his people back to the land. That was re revelation knowledge. And my people had faith. They believed that that was going to happen. The vast majority of the church had a perfect faith that Israel would never exist as a nation again. They reasoned that Israel had been abandoned by God and that the church was now Israel. The faith of those who believed that the land of Israel would once again exist did not create the nation of Israel. Conversely, the faith of those who didn't believe the land of Israel would ever exist again did not hinder the creation of Israel. Obviously, the faith of those who believed God was true. Those who did not believe God were deluded. Their reason, although it, it was perfectly logical and perf perfectly reasonable, ended up being false. In a pa'am, in an instant, the nation of Israel was once was born, fulfilling the words of Isaiah. Hebrews goes on to say that faith is the substance of things that is hoped for. The word substance in Greek is the word hypostasis. And it means something which has actual existence, something that is real. Science has incorporated this Greek word. Hypostasis represents the essential quality of something the thing that makes it what it is, the thing that distinguishes it, its existence from all other things. It identifies it. The word hypostasis is used also by the author of Hebrews again in chapter 1, verse 3. Yeshua is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The phrase, exact representation of his being, is a single word in Greek, hypostasis. He is the exact 
representation of God. This is why Yeshua could say to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hupostasis relates to the Hebrew word yehi, which means to be. Yehi ur, let there be light. Vayehi ur, and there was light. It, Yehi means something that has, is real. It, it has an actual existence, not just in a person's mind. When Moshe asks God his name, God responds, Yeh, Asher, Yeh. I am who I am. Eyeh comes from the same root. It's, it's the root Yehi. It means to be. It is the root of God's name, yud heh vav Yeshua refers to himself in this way in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4. He declares himself the one who is, who was, and who is to come. In Hebrew, that would be rendered by various tenses of the word yehi. Hahoveh, Vahaya, Viavo, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who shall be. We sing these words in, in the liturgical song Adon Olam, which means Master or Lord of the Universe. We also sing it in the Messianic worship song Kadosh. Yeshua declares himself to be yud here, the master of the universe, the one who was, is, and who shall be. My faith assures me God exists, and that his word is true. It's not a delusion. It is a truth that has been revealed to me and which guides my decisions, the decisions I make every single day. There are things I do because I believe God is real. There are things I don't do because I believe God is real. For the last four decades, I've spoken on one subject more than all others combined. God's holiness, his separateness. Kadosh, or holy, simply means to be separate. Paul describes him this way, himself this way in Romans chapter 1. He has been separated from the world to God. He's holy. He's been separated. Holy is, or kadosh, is singularly the most profound description of God that is given to us in his word. It is the hypostatic, the essential quality that distinguishes God from everything else that exists. In this universe, everything changes moment by moment. The entire universe is different right now than when I began this message. It has increased in size dramatically. It's expanding at over a million miles per hour. Many people have died since the time I started this message.
just a few minutes ago. Many more have been born. Everything is changing. This creation had a beginning, and it will eventually end. The earth and all that it contains will pass in a fervent heat. The mundane heavens, the atmosphere that surrounds our planet, as well as the cosmos in which our planet exists, will eventually disappear. Even the more ethereal third heaven, the realm of angels, is subject to change. Angelic beings suffer similar temptations to man. I've heard many sermons, as well as I have numerous commentaries, that state that angels are different than man. They have no self-determination. That, that is utter nonsense. That, that is definitively false. The original sin of coveting caused Lucifer, the bright one, to rebel. And he became Hasatan, the accuser. The serpent of old, Hasatan, also enticed man to what? Be like God, to covet God's position. Satan's desire to be God will eventually result in a war that is waged in the third heaven. Chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, the serpent of old, the dragon, and his angels. They fight. There's a war going on. That war will be reflected here in the physical, on the physical earth, a war that has the nations gathered together to fight against the Lord and his anointed, which in Hebrew is Mashiach. They fight against the Lord and Yeshua in, a in an express desire to break the ties that bind us to God and his Mashiach. Psalm 2 states this without any equivocation. Apparently, both angels and men are called by God, B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, and apparently both are able to be seduced into thinking that they are more powerful than the ancient of days, than God himself. The angels did it first, man followed. The inhabitants of the third heaven are more acutely aware of God's holiness. In Isaiah 6, in the vision of God to Isaiah at his calling, the seraphim declare this condition continually as they hover around the throne of God. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzavaot. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, or actually Tzavaot means armies. It's part of Tzahel, the, the name of, of Israel's defense forces. Although different from every created being, God is connected to his creation. For everything in the creation was birthed in the mind of God. All creation is a manifestation of God's thoughts. And when he spoke those thoughts, 
All that exists came into being. Once again, Yehi or, let there be light. And immediately, there was light. This is especially true of the sons of God, both angelic and human. Although God is the underlying force that sustains the creation moment by moment, he must shield creation from the fullness of his presence. We see examples of this all the time in more mundane energy sources. The sun provides the energy utilized by life on earth. It's what it is. Yet the earth cannot exist in the full strength of the energy the sun emits. We have an atmosphere that filters or diminishes that energy and if we were exposed to the fullness of the energy of the sun, we would, would simply burn up, become cinders. That's what happened to Aaron's sons. They made a strange smoke that couldn't shield them from the full presence of God. And when God appeared, they became cinders. Same t this is the same thing with God. Psalm 18, verse 11. He made darkness his secret place. The light of God is obscured in Olam Hazet, in this world, by clouds that shroud his glory. Every once in a while, those clouds part a bit, and we can see the Lord a bit more clearly. Every place or thing in creation that is illuminated by these points of light become transfigured. They begin to shine. They begin to become light. Another word that we use in English, the word temple, is an English translation of the Hebrew words Beit HaMikdash, or the house of holy, or the holy house. It is a place separated out from all other places within this creation, a place God chooses to reveal a greater amount, a greater amount of his presence. The creation of man follows the sequence of the creation of the angelic beings. The first holy house was heaven, the third heaven as Paul refers to it. The first heaven is the atmosphere, the second, the cosmos, the third heaven is the realm of angels. And the first holy house was heaven, and it was created prior to the earth. God created beings of light and placed them in a heavenly or non-physical realm. Following this incorporeal or heavenly holy house, God turned his attention to the physical creation. He created Adam, a creature formed from the earth, yet created, as the scriptures say, B'Tselem V'Demut, in the image and the likeness of God. He was, he was breath. He was light. He also constructed an environment for man to live in, Gan Eden. God created angelic beings and constructed an environment for them, heaven. He created man and created an environment for him to live in. He then sanctified or made holy both man and the garden. 
The word kadosh, or holy, is first used in scripture to describe the seventh day. It is the period of time man existed in this unique presence of God. That day was declared holy when God rested and he dwelt with man in peace. And that place remained holy or separate for whatever period of time God remained there. We have no idea how long the seventh day was. I've mentioned this many times. Could have been 24 hours. It could have been eons. It is impossible to tell because we never read the words and it was evening and morning the seventh day. God never closed the seventh day. The rest and peace ended only when man chose to disobey God and God removed him from his presence. That's when it ended. A place is holy because God dwells this. The book of Exodus reveals the truth of my words. When Moshe ascended Sinai or Horeb, as it's called, it's got two names, Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. When Moshe ascended Sinai to see the bush that is burning without being consumed, God commanded him to remove his sandals for the ground he stands on his holy ground. Why was that ground different from all other ground? God was there. And the place that God appears is holy ground. He is holy, and that holiness is imparted to wherever he dwells. That ground was not holy prior to God showing up. Animals, the same thing happened when Moshe returned with the rest of Israel. No animal and no, no life was allowed to, to, to approach that mountain while God was there. Prior to God showing up, animals, men, they climbed all over that mountain. After God left, they climbed all over that mountain. While God was there, if you touched the mountain, you died. The cycle of God's physical sanctuaries, which began with the garden, reveals a continual reduction of God's presence. The extraordinary presence of God found in the garden was greater than the presence of God found in Ohel Moed, the tent of the meeting, which was greater than God's presence revealed in the first Beit HaMikdash, the first temple, which was greater than his presence revealed in the second temple. I discussed this in greater depth last week. However, with the coming of Yeshua, that direction was reversed. The entire direction of the world was reversed. Yeshua set us on a course to return to Gan Eden, the place that provided a unique environment for the first earthly temple, which was man. We are the ones that held the presence of God, the image and the likeness of the Creator. He prepared a vessel into which that glory of God was poured. 
We existed as the Holy of Holies. That's what Yeshua is trying to teach the young woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation, Yeshua, that's what his name means, is of the Jew. God is a spirit, a wind, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He predicts a time when the worship of God would once again reside in our neshama, that divine breath that was breathed into us. And if that worship be true, it would transform that person into Beit HaMikdash, a holy house. When God's temple stood, you, you hear about people, let us go and worship the Lord. That meant only one thing. When the temple stood, it meant to, me, it, it meant to bring a sacrifice. The general word for sacrifice in scripture is the word korban. And it literally means to draw close. When we came to worship God, to draw close to him, it was, a, it was through a sacrifice. I, that condition still exists. I draw close to God through the sacrifice of my Lord that was made for me. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing changes with him. The same procedure to come to God in the time of the temple is the same procedure now. We bring a sacrifice. I no longer have to make it because the sacrifice of my Lord was perfect. It was righteous. It was innocent. But it's only through that sacrifice that I can approach God. Same as it was in the temple. I just no longer have to make sacrifice every year, blood of bulls and goats. John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. These, these are some of the most profound words I've ever read. God is telling me that he lives within me. That is a concept that I simply cannot get my mind around. What are you, slumming? <laughs> you, you couldn't find anybody else better than this? When God makes his abode in me, what do I become? A holy house. The temple that Paul speaks about 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, then I become the living sacrifice upon that altar. And the soul of that sacrifice is ignited by the fire that descends directly from heaven. The same way he sanctified the, the tent of the meeting and the first temple, the first holy house. The transformation of man has begun. It began 2,000 years ago. And the more his words transform our behavior, the more God's holy presence will fill us. Not a house created by the hands of man, but a holy house formed by the hand of God himself to hold his image and likeness. This is what Paul gets at in the New Covenant portion this, for this week. We are God's garden, his cultivated field. We are the temple of the living God. To understand your potential in creation, you have to first understand the true nature of your being. Those who reside in Yeshua have come to realize a very profound truth. It's conveyed by a beautiful parable. A king has a son, and his enemies come by and snatch the boy. They kidnap him, and they take him away. They make him a slave. And many years later, the king never stopped looking for that child. Him and his ministers scoured the countryside, calling out, Ayeka, where are you? The same thing God called out to the man in the garden. The king finally finds his child. He explains to him who he is, how he came to be where he presently is. And the child who thought himself a slave now understood he was a child of the king. Those who reside in Yeshua have come to realize we are the children of the king. Hallelujah. Can I get one hallelujah? Bunch of Presbyterians. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are the children of God. His breath resides in me. His light resides in me. If that doesn't overwhelm you, you need prayer. When you accepted Yeshua, you were transfigured into a creature that is not altogether of this world. We may be in it, but we are not of it. And the older I get, I'm not even in it anymore. I, I just wander. We are now part of a, a royal priesthood. 
The first man was eventually guided by his reason and the desires of his flesh, and he was therefore able to be deceived by the serpent of old. And as flowers spring forth from the mound covering a moldering corpse, so a new man rose up and emerged from the old one that died. The creature of flesh and blood is now this glorious creature of wind and light. When I keep his word, I prepare this house to receive the presence of the one who is, who was, and who shall be, destined to live immersed in and saturated by the light and the breath of God, the very image of the one who first created me. The world is making it more difficult to remain on the righteous, or as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the word righteous comes from a root which means straight. The world is making it real difficult to remain on the straight and narrow, the righteous path of God. Deceptions distract us and doubt obscures the reality of our faith. And I cannot encourage you enough, tend to your faith daily. That substance, that reality of God's revelation. Feed that neshama, the bread of life, and wash it down with the living waters. And it will refresh your neshama. It will bring peace, even in the midst that it's the peace that Paul talks about that passes our understanding, our reason. It allows us to find peace in the midst of turbulence. Because my God never changes. He is the rock upon which my faith is built. And so my faith is steadfast because the one I have faith in never changes. Indeed, he is the fountainhead. Mikor Chaim, the very fountainhead of life. I bring these words to encourage you. The days are getting darker and they will get much darker. We have not seen an end to the darkness. But the light of God's presence is already with you. It's in here. And the light of that candle Proverbs speak about the soul of a man being the candle of God. That light is with you wherever you go. Darkness may surround you, but darkness must retreat wherever you go. For there is no darkness so thick that light will not push it back. Let the light of your soul shine brightly. We've just left the days of 
Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, the feast of light. Let that light shine brightly. It's not only for you, it's for others who will be drawn to that light. Father, in Yeshua's name, we give praise, honor, and glory to you, and I thank you, Father. You are a great God, worthy to be praised. Your light is a light unto our path, even in the midst of darkness. In your light, we see light. Let us not turn to the left or the right. Let us remain on the path that is straight, that is righteous, that is true, or at least to the narrow gate in the face of the one we long to see. In Yeshua's precious name, amen.